Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Keep Lefty, program of Victorian Labor College. Uh, in the studio is Kim Doyle. Hi, everyone. John Lafferty. Morning, everybody. And myself, Chris Gaffney. And you're going to lead off again, Kim? Yes, uh, with a subject that is very close to my heart. Um, people may have heard that of the 57 million people who had a crack at calling Centrelink, um, the Australian National Auditor found this week that 13 million abandoned the line before reaching an operator, which is... 13 million? Yes, that's roughly a quarter of calls. Presumably, um, those 13 million callers gave up uh, because the average waiting time is just under 17 minutes. That's the average official waiting time. Mm-hmm. Although around one-third of callers were forced to wait for around 30 minutes and customers are often left waiting for more than an hour. Another 13.7 million didn't even enter into the Centrelink system at all because the lines were overloaded. So that's when you get that beep, 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 yeah, engaged yeah, right, noise. Right. Classical music, I think. Yeah. Well, that's if you're lucky enough to be put on hold. If they entertain you. Yes. <laughs> so nearly a half of all callers, some 26 million people, didn't have their issue resolved, or you're assuming that if you get to talk to Centrelink that your issue is resolved. Um, so the auditors calculated that that means that Australians spent 143 years waiting in vain to speak to Centrelink in 2013 to 14 before simply giving up because, you know, we've all got better things to do with our lives. It's job experience, I reckon. Yeah, waiting. (laughs) Waiting. Work experience. Um, So people, that's how long people waited before abandoning the phone or throwing the phone if you're anything like me. So wait times for Centrelink telephones are the number one complaint against the welfare agency and the audit found that the problem is only getting worse. So average waiting times have blown out massively from just over three minutes in five seconds, apparently, in 2010 to 11, uh, to nearly 17, as I said, in 2013-14. Although I don't think I've ever, ever gotten through to Centrelink that quickly. Me neither. Mm. Until I found your numbers. (laughs) The auditor's report also found that so-called average waiting times, um, which, as I said, were 17 minutes, uh, did not actually reflect the experience of customers, with 30% um, being on hold for more than 30 minutes. Even, but even that term, customers. That, oh yeah, that really. Even Clients. the library calls me a customer. I, I was. I sound like an old crank, but I went. <laughs> I said, "Look, I'm a borrower, a lender, a citizen, a ratepayer. I'm not a bloody. I don't want to buy the library." I know it's <laughs> like when when you go to the hospital with a broken arm, they start calling you a client. It's like a client. <laughs> Uh, I've yeah. got like I've got something sticking out of my arm. God, um, this is not You're where I would be if I had any customer choice. <laughs> You're buying healthcare. Yeah, well, I think as well this this thirty percent um, who waited for more than thirty minutes. I think that number that figure might be a little bit deceptive as well because it doesn't take into account the people how long the people who gave up um, and just uh, hung up how long they were we waiting. Don't get to count them, do we? No. So now you see why uh, this is the number one complaint about Centrelink. Um, and I've had, I think a lot of people have had this experience and I've seen it, of people waiting at Centrelink and you actually have to line up before Centrelink opens to 
there's a line, a pre-line, if mm-hmm. people have noticed now outside Centrelink centres. There used to actually be a dole queue and you would actually have to be there at, for instance, 9 o'clock in the morning and you would line up alphabetically according to your name. So the, the, there was a, a dole queue if you go back to the glorious 70s. Right. right. It was worse. Well, this is a, this is a self-organised queue, um, which is yeah. kind of interesting. Um, but oftentimes you get to the front of the queue at Centrelink and they tell you that you need to... Join the queue? No, that you need to you phone up. <laughs> yes. yes. Anyway. I go online. So co- the Community and Public Sector Union, the CPSU, National Secretary Nadine Flood said she was most concerned for those who were highly dependent on the service, such as poor families and people who are housebound. And she says that one of our members, that is a CPSU member who doesn't work for Centrelink, sent me a screenshot of their phone showing that they'd waited for over 19 minutes on the family's line. CPSU, um, is that the Communist Party of the Soviet Union? Uh, we, I was just going to ignore that. Um, she continued, this is tough for people in the community who rely on Centrelink. People with disabilities are now waiting over an hour, hour and a half to get their calls answered and it can be very, very difficult for people with disabilities to get into Centrelink, to use public transport. Um, it's you know much worse than it is for the rest of us, if you can even imagine that, since it's pretty awful anyway. So the message, I think oh, she says, the message is simple. You've got to fund these services properly and put permanent jobs back into Centrelink so that people can actually get the service uh, the government uh, from government that they need. Mm-hmm. And whenever, I don't know, whenever I've spoken to, actually gotten through to speak to people at Centrelink, they've all been lovely. Mm. It's that they're oh, being stopped from doing the their jobs. Yeah. Yeah. No. And, and not often, enough of them. Mm. Or often they're very, very patient, even though you, you know you can tell that they're under a bit of pressure. Yeah. Because well, they're yeah. understaffed. Yeah. Um, so now what? we'll see what Centrelink's response has been. Uh, in response to the bad publicity um, from the audit... Uh, bosses at the Department of Human Services, which runs Centrelink, told their officials to put every available public servant on phone duty. So team meetings, training and other off-phone uh, activities were cancelled for at least two days as the agency scrambled to try and make themselves look good. This week. Mm. This <laughs> week. So if you, if you want to call Centrelink, call them now. Uh, one manager's email, uh, which was seen by Fairfax Media, ordered manager, manager's teams to drop everything and to do nothing but answer phones for two days. Two days, not even a week. Yeah. The Department of Human Services uh, line manager wrote, there is currently significant media attention surrounding our wait times for customers. As a result, a number of strategies are being put in place to assist with maximising customer access um, for the next two days. Offline activities are generally required to be removed. Now, I can imagine that this would put a huge amount of pressure on staff and services because I don't imagine they're sitting around playing heads down, thumbs up or no, no. whatever while they're not answering the phone. Um, and so the, the response of the Minister for Human Services, um, Senator um, Mars Payne, uh, believe, she believes that the answer to all this is the internet. The internet will mm-hmm. yes. fix everything. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've already put quite a lot online, but again, there's there's still lots of problems with... Well, for a start, it would be extremely difficult to afford uh, the internet if you were on New Start allowance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then there's people who are on the pensions who are not uh, digitally literate. And also, you just the computers can't have a conversation with you the way that that's right. You know, you yet some of your problems you just cannot solve it online. You really do need to speak to someone and get some feedback. I saw very, very briefly a spokesman for Centrelink, and he was making some point that. An awful lot of money, taxpayers' money, has been sent, spent on the online services and people aren't using them. 
No. Right. Well, I mean, if you get cut off, you can't do anything about it no. online. And Miss Flood, yeah, the, the woman who I was speaking about from CPSU, she said, Centrelink Medicare and child support benefits are complex interrelated payments and people actually need to talk to a real person. Mm. And I think this is because they actually make them um, purposefully complicated for people to keep them off the benefits. It so also they gets people off the dole. I think, there's, I think the government's not Just too bothered up. by this because people will give up exactly. and accept some totally shitty job Instead mm. of being on the dole because life on the dole. I've known a friend of mine, he lives on basically the smell of air because he got so harassed by the, mm. the dole people that he said to hell with it. And he didn't, life on the dole's hard he didn't have a job, but mm. he, now he doesn't get the dole. So he lives on the tiny amounts he does from doing oh, odd little jobs. It's just a r- horrific. Like you go in there and even if you know, you're lucky enough not to have to be dependent on them you know, all the time, it just, they just feel like carnivals of misery really you oh, go in sure. there and there's so many people oh, who, no, they're depressing places yeah um i remember i was told when i was had quite rightfully had a right to oz study at the age of 19 that in order to get it um i should declare bankruptcy because they had to wait six weeks before they gave it to bankrupt me I'm like, I'm not, 19, i know <laughs> good anyway <laughs> very um, careless i know i didn't i just ended up being broke for a while so these um services these service issues are also workplace issues and the CPSU has responded to um, these revelations um, quite differently to Centrelink. And they say that um, the calls that have gone unanswered are a result of the federal government's um, attacks on the public service and that they should obviously cease. Uh, more than half of the public sector is um, taking or preparing to take industrial action. And the CPSU said Centrelink's slow phone service is a symptom of a much wider Decay. problem of under-resourcing. Yeah. And um, uh, Flood, who was the woman I was talking about earlier, said that uh, this is what years of those so-called efficiency dividends um, that cut jobs looks like. And that this puts, um, obviously puts, well, again, clients, I'm putting that in quotation marks, under huge stress and then puts staff under huge stress. Mm -hmm. And that these cuts actually started with the previous government, but obviously um, Abbott has made them much worse. Uh, And there's also, well, they talk about being under a huge amount of stress because, like nurses, um, they're also faced with um, increased aggression and attacks yeah. towards their staff, not, you know, because of their own fault, but, you know, people are stressed and they're under pressure. That's right, yeah. And the sportsman for Centrelink made that point. He says, yes, we have had an increase in people being aggressive towards our staff, but that's just basically a reflection of general society, which is nonsense. If you're going to be kept waiting for one, two, however many hours, you're going to get more and more frustrated. And the staff are going to get more and more frustrated. It's a cycle. And you're not a client. You actually need this stuff to live, so it's not about choice. Mm -hmm. Okay, I was going to speak a little bit about the terrible scourge of terrorism. This week, we saw two stories relating to young men's fascination with killing, especially killing in the name of a cause. The first story concerns Jokhard Sarniev, also known as the Boston Bomber. The second story concerned Henry Windsor, also known as Prince Harry. It's not unusual for young people, especially boys, to believe that the ends justifies the means. In these two cases, violence is seen as being an acceptable way of achieving a desired political outcome. When I was a teenager, I glorified the Red Army faction, also known as the Bader-Meinhof Gang. They were a far-left militant organisation operating in Germany from the 70s through to the 90s. 
The founding philosophy of anti-fascism seemed to have a lot to merit it. It did. However, their favoured modus operandi of bank robberies, bomb blasts and kidnapping and killing of right-wing politicians and businessmen saw them correctly labelled in Germany as terrorists. The furthest I got in my support of these and similar groups, Brigata Rossi and the Japanese Red Army, the furthest I got was to graffiti their names on some walls. Nowadays, the most common philosophy of recognised terrorists is Islamic fundamentalism. Jokhard Sarnayev falls into this sad category. In 2013, Sarnayev, then aged only 19, was duped into committing a terrible act of violence against, alongside his older brother Tamerlan. They bombed the Boston Marathon, killing three innocent spectators and injuring 264 others. Later they shot dead a police officer and injured 16 others. The elder bomber, uh, sorry, the elder brother, who's the actual bomber, he's the one that did that, uh, is sometimes laughingly referred to as a mastermind. He was also killed. The other one, the the baby-faced Jokar, whose picture bears a striking resemblance to a young Bob Dylan, may yet become another martyr for a reactionary and a simple-minded philosophy which deserves no martyrs. Who knows, if steered on a better path, Jokar may have shown to have some of the talent or intelligence of a young Bob Dylan himself. As it is, this week this 21-year-old man was sentenced to death by lethal injection. He is now the youngest of 63 men on the U.S. federal death row. These two brothers appear to have believed that killing Americans, any Americans, at random would further their cause. Perhaps they saw this cause, perhaps, as being at one with oppressed Arab and or Muslim people. Of course, killing folks simply based on their nationality is stupid and unjust, an obvious terrorist act. Prince Harry is another young man who apparently believes that violence is a good way to solve the world's problems. Though 30 years old, and with what we're told is a good education, maybe he should know better. Now, last week I spoke about his father, Prince Charles, having been exposed writing letters to the British government urging an increase in taxpayer funding for the military. I said this about Harry, quote, This past few weeks, Harry has been touring Australia and New Zealand. Under the guise of Anzac commemoration, that's now nearly a month ago, he has been parading in army fatigues. It seems to be little more than an army recruitment drive. Well, no sooner had Harry gotten off the plane in England than he was all over the media. Bring back conscription, says Prince Harry. Having learned nothing from his father's mistakes... Here was yet another royal meddling in military and political matters. Yet again, one of the Windsors has forgotten that they're supposed to be a mere constitutional monarchy, above and beyond politics. Harry told anyone who'd listened, this a quote, I dread to think where I'd be without the army. The army has done amazing things for me. Bring back national service. Maybe we shouldn't be surprised. Back in 2013, Harry bragged about killing insurgents while piloting his £45 million Apache helicopter. Quote, If there's people trying to do bad stuff to our guys, then we'll take them out of the game. Take a life to save a life. My dad's always trying to remind me about who I am and stuff like that. But I enjoy my job. 
The thing is that unlike most soldiers, uh, Harry, you know, unlike most uh, Harry, most soldiers don't actually fly multi-million dollar aircraft. I mean, what's that? It's a hundred million dollars that aircraft's worth. It was also reported in the Daily Mail in 2013 that 2012 US military papers reveal that Harry was actually given special treatment when his base was attacked by Taliban. These papers stated that he was given, quote, a place identified as a safe house in case the base came under attack. The British Ministry of Defence confirmed this, but said that all helicopter pilots received this privilege. Well, they would say that. Then again, they're probably not wanting to protect the pilots. They probably want to protect the uh, forty-five million pound planes. Actually. Worth far more. <laughs> so yeah, which are worth far more, and that would be constant capital as opposed to variable capital. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Harry's call for a return of conscription is at worst sinister, but at best, it's just dumb. Conscription or national service is the norm in many countries an awful lot of countries, actually. But in the English-speaking world, the professional volunteer armies do a perfectly adequate job of making imperialist war whenever and wherever they're required to. Britain got rid of conscription in 1960. Hopefully it doesn't return. People might be wondering why I bring Jokar and Harry together. Well, I, I bring Jokar and Harry together because, well, they come from very different places and it looks like they're going to be going very different places. They are united in a shared belief. They're young, they're naive, and they believe that violence is the answer to a lot of society's problems. Jokar is a terrorist of the lone nut variety. Harry, I'd say, is a terrorist. If there is such a thing as state terrorism, you have to have state terrorists. I'd say Harry is a terrorist of the state variety. Part of me feels sorry for the Boston bomber. And if Harry ever develops a conscience about his killing, maybe we can all feel sorry for him too. I Marxists don't agree with terrorism because it's an individual response. And what it does is, rather than get the activism of the mass of the people, mm. in fact, they even get their consent, these people take upon themselves, self-appointed, they mm. become killers, whatever, for the mass of the people without ever asking them. Mm. Uh, it's an individual response. What mm. we are looking for as Marxists is a class response. Mass. I'm not people necessarily opposed to force at all, but I mm. want it to be the force <clears throat> of the majority, mm. not lone gunmen's deciding they know what's best for the rest of us. And that's, that's the that point I'm... is that people learn how is that people experience running society themselves. That's exactly. If you see the Baden-Meinhof gang with the red star flag and the you know the machine mm. gun emblem on top of it, and they're wearing the dark glasses, smoking the cigarettes, it's all very very cool. And we don't have to wait for this revolution. These guys are going to bring do it, it for on us. now. They're, they're going to bring it on now. It is very very attractive, especially tr- when you're young. Yeah. It was but, to me. And yeah. when the you live under terror, but it's bullshit. Mm-hmm. The, po- the point is that it's still terror. It's still individual terrorism. And uh, it's killing. It. It's killing. Well, I mean, sometimes. About, it's, yeah, go talking on. about state, um, state, state terrorism. terrorism. It's nearly uh, nearly after a, a it's nearly a year after the debacle debacle suffered by the Americans, and the regime it supposed after eight bloody years of war and the occupation of Iraq, the fall of the second largest city Mosul to the Islamic State of Iraq and Israel, Issa ISIS. Uh, uh, and a similar collapse has unfolded in Ramadi, capital of Anbar, uh, Iraq's largest province. 
just as is with Mosul, and there's another place whose name flashed out of uh, my head. Ramadi, and uh, what was the other one? Uh, oh, yeah, there's another, another, another city. And the fall of Ramadi has unleashed a new humanitarian catastrophe on the war-raged people of Iraq, with hundreds, if not thousands, of civilians killed and tens of thousands turned into homeless refugees. The latest debacle has unfolded nearly 10 months into the Obama administration's operation, and I love this title, Inherent Resolve, end of quote, the title given to Washington's latest military intervention into the Middle East. It's provoked criticism within ruling circles of US strategy, which has consisted of US airstrikes of both, against both Iraq and Syria, the deployment of nearly 5,000 American troops, and the launching of a $500 million program to train and arm so-called Syrian rebels, who often end up being the very terrorists they're fighting next door in Iraq. <laughs> they're not a very good record, do they? And they're, they're, the, they're the ones in Iraq. That's right, exactly <laughs> the same. There are, there's a growing drumbeat, of course, in America, amongst the American press, to send greater numbers of US ground forces. In other words, we're going to go through the, exactly the same mistakes that the Americans have been made since, since 2001. It's no accident that this drive for the escalation of ongoing U.S. intervention another uh, in this context, another thoroughly dishonest debate has played out in the context of the 19, 2016 presidential election campaign over with the question of whether the launching of the March 2003 of Iraq was a mistake or a justified result uh, to what proved to be, as they put it, faulty intelligence. The immediate impetus for this phony debate has been caused by the Republican President Jeb, Jeb Bush and other Republicans to account for the actions of the younger Bush's brother, George W. The aim of both the capitalist politicians and the media is to erase from the consciousness of the American people the bitter lessons of being dragged into a criminal war of aggression foisted upon them through scaremongering about lies of mass weapons of mass destruction and imaginary ties between Baghdad and Al-Qaeda. Both these were fabrications that even the establishment has to admit, and they were to promote a war whose real aim, of course, and we must never forget this, was securing US hegemony over the entire energy-rich Middle East. Now, clearly, uh, Jeb Bush's response consists in large measure of the undeniable assertion, this is what's made him so unpopular, that not only he and, not only did he and his brother support the war, but so did Hillary Clinton, who's going to be the Democratic nominee, along with virtually the entire ruling establishment in America and in Australia and the press in both Australia and America. And what was the responsibility of the press shamefully neglected? They exposed nothing. They accepted the government lies and, and produced them. Now, but have now, nor clearly have these crimes stopped with either the end of the Bush administration or the 2011 withdrawal of US troops from Iraq. The US-NATO war has destroyed Libya, was launched on the pretext of human right. It was necessary, we were told, to protect the people of Benghazi from imminent massacre. Today, of course, Benghazi is being reduced to rubble as fighting continues between rival militias. The predatory arm aims of this imperious intervention by the American has been further exposed by the recent revelation that Hillary Clinton was promoting the Libya policy recommendations of former Bill Clinton aide Sidney Blumenthal, 
who in turn was working with a group of capitalist investors on schemes to exploit the rich country's wealth once its government was smashed and its leader, Gaddafi, murdered. This criminal bloodletting is being carried out in the service of naked profit interests, and that's what it's all about in the Middle East. Well over a million people have lost their lives, with millions more maimed or driven from their homes. Entire countries have been destroyed. In the drive to overthrow and assassinate one secular Arab leader, one after another, from and these weren't Muslim crackpots, these weren't Muslim extremists, these were secular leaders, or pretty repulsive secular leaders, but they were secular leaders, and their crime was that they stood in the way of US domination of the region, from Saddam Hussein to Bashar al-Assad to Gaddafi. The Pentagon and the CIA have deliberately fomented sectarian divisions against these people, pitting Sunnis against Shia in an even bloodier version of the old colonial strategy of divide and rule, which the British used in Crete, in Ireland and elsewhere. ISIS is the direct product of this process, spawned by the US intervention in Iraq and strengthened by the proxy war for regime change in Syria, where it and other Sunni Islamist militants were armed and funded by Washington's regional allies under the guiding hand of the CIA, and I mean that by Saudi Arabia. As one crime and debacle follows another, what's remarkable is that nobody is being held to account. Every element of the ruling strata and every institution of American society are implicated, from the Bushes, Clintons and Obama to Congress, the profit-hungry corporations, the lying media and the overwhelmingly cowdy and self-satisfied academia. And relating back to um, Kim's discussion on the, uh, the problems of the Dole Office, well, I think I have the problem for... I think I have the answer You've for... You've got the solution. The, the solution. The solution's always there before the problem. That's right. And the solution clearly is to be found in the Saudi Arabian Ministry of Civil Service because they have now advertised for eight job openings this week for new executioners. OK. Oh. On its uh, employment website. Are they doing retraining as well? Uh, no morals sure. required. No, none whatsoever. <laughs> no skill required, says the ad. Really? The job posting states that no that particular qualifications are necessary. Yeah. This is to behead people. And that applicants will not be subject to be typical civil service entrance exams. <laughs> Come on, you know I'll do any job for a quid. The, it new, pay? the new state killers, I'll give you the address after the show. I want the money. The new state killers, who are formally classified as religious functionaries, mm. will be responsible for carrying out the death sentences according to Islamic Sharia law. And they will also be responsible for amputating the hands of those individuals convicted of criminal offences that don't carry the death penalty. Sounds like a fun job. The Saudi monarchy is in desperate need for new swordsmen, as the number of beheadings is on pace to double from last year. Complete silence about this from the Australian government, who was so shocked at the executions of the the two Australians in Indonesia. According to the Human Rights Watch, there have been 85 beheadings so far this year, Mm. nearly matching the 90 carried out right throughout 2014. It's under the new king. That's right. Half the those beheaded were Saudi Arabian. The others were migrant workers oh, from Yemen, Pakistan, Jordan, Syria, mm. Sudan, Chad, Eritrea, India, Burma, Indonesia and the Philippines. Mm. American officials, including Obama and uh, John Kerry, the Secretary of State, uh, 
hadn't been silent uh, as they uh, it's been silent as they criticised the horrific images of beheadings by the Islamic State in Iraq and just and Syria. This is being used to justify mil- military operations in Iraq and Syria, and yet amongst their ally. Many, many more beheadings are carried out. And you know about the Indonesian domestic maid who killed her boss, mm. and there's, you know the stories of this. Mm. I was deserved. And as Indonesian, it was like right after Chan and Sukumaran were executed, right. and Indonesia was saying, "Well, you know, we've got to save her life." Well, they're not going to save her life because these poor people from the Asian countries—they're treated like dogs. oh, they're, they're yeah. dispensable. You know? The um, Saudi Arabia is ranked third in the number of executions behind China and Iran. Uh, Saudi Arabia is one of the last countries to official sanction public executions and the only one to carry them out on a methodical basis. In fact, Riyadh, which is the capital of Saudi Arabia... Riyadh. Riyadh, sorry, is grotesquely nicknamed Chop Chop Chop, Square. square. Earlier this month, five men who'd been convicted of murder were beheaded in Jeddah and their corpses were hung from a rope from a helicopter hovering above the city in a grisly public display. That's as a le- that's the warning. Hmm. It's illegal to film the killings. Videos depicting the practice often leak online. A Saudi security official was arrested in January for filming and posting online the video of a t- typical execution. It shows a woman protesting her innocence as she's forced to the ground by security officers and her head is cut off. <sighs> of course, the death penalty is not just for murder. It's also applicable under Saudi law for adultery. Mm-hmm. Apostasy, that's Apostasy, yeah. uh, for atheists, burglary, drug smuggling, sorcery, witchcraft, fortification, my God, sodomy, homosexuality, lesbianism, carjacking, and waging war on God. A Sudanese migrant war worker was beheaded in 2011 after being convicted of practicing witchcraft and sorcery. Mm-hmm. He was entrapped by an agent provocateur from Saudi Arabia's religious police who asked him to cast a spell to reunite the police agent's supposedly divorced parents. The bloke obliged and was arrested and then beheaded. The spike in public execution also comes as a Saudi moniker, monarchy, with the full support of the United States, is leading a punishing air war against the Houthi in Yemen. More than 1,800 people have died. The Saudi-led coalition our friends, have committed numerous war crimes, deploying illegal cluster munitions and dropping bombs on refugee camps, uh, dairy factories, schools, hospitals, airports and residential neighbourhoods. And what they did to Bahrain. Bahrain a few years ago. Saudi Arabia has now entered the top five, which was always the United Nations security members, of the countries which are the biggest arms manufacturers who spend the most on arms. And they're using them in Bahrain, That's in right. Yemen. Mm. And they've they, received a subsidy from the United States of something between as four and five billion. As part of the counter in these countries. They've well. overtaken Britain and or France and what they Spend. So when you hear Mr Abbott talking about our efforts overseas, remember who our friends are. Mm. Who are the, whose side are we on? We're on the side of hardly democracy, of the Saudi, Saudi princes and what life is like for women there. Well, I won't even bother going in there because I'm sure you all know. It's 10.31. It's your chance to ring up, have your say on anything, whether we've talked about it or not, whether you agree with us or not, on 94190155. Nine four one nine zero one double five. Jan is taking your phone calls, and uh, we'd love to hear from you. Nine four one nine 
0155. Chris, you were speaking before about Clinton and the other <coughs> fellow you mentioned, Mrs. Clinton, the other fellow you mentioned, uh, before Bush. going in. Uh, no, there was a, oh. I forget the guy, mm. Rosenthal or something. Uh, before you, uh, they went into Libya, they were sort of like organising how they would divvy up Libya That's after right. they'd done all the damage. I mean, this is very similar to, and I forget the name, Dick Cheney, remember, in mm. Iraq? Yeah. Mm. Uh, what was the name of that organisation he had? And oh. it was like they, they, they were going to go in and rebuild Iraq yeah, after right. they destroyed it. Yes, so yes. it's about profit, mate. Oh, well, of course it's about profit. Of course you it's know, about one profit. One way or t'other. And, the, yeah. and the mock outrage being shown uh, about the uh, ISIS, who I agree are utterly, oh, yeah, absolutely, are utterly yeah. repulsing. The United States are responsible for ISIS. They're amateurs when it comes to behaviour. Well, they are. And they're also amateurs. Well, where are their adverts? They're, that's right. I think the U.S. is doing them, aren't they? <laughs> well, I mean, the United States... And the other point about the division between state terror and the individual terror, the reality is state terror by the United States has killed nearly a million people. Yes, but terrorism it is terrorism. It doesn't make it any less repulsive. Right. It, yeah. it doesn't make it any repulsive. But let's keep it yes. in perspective. Individual terrorism and ISIS are utterly repulsive. Yes. But the side that we're on is more repulsive. They drop bombs on hospitals, schools and kindergartens from the year, and they've killed a million people in, in Iraq. Well, I don't care. That's the context. You don't, don't, may not care. I don't care. For, no, no, I, I don't care for Western capitalism or for Islamic fundamentalism. Well, I'm not saying... No one's arguing that yeah. the ISIS people are good guys. All no. I'm saying is that their obnoxiousness has really got some strong competition. All right, we've got uh, David about to come online, and he's from Ripon Lee, and you can do what David has done. And ring up on nine four one nine zero one double five, nine four one nine zero one double five. Apropos, what you were saying, Kim, about unemployment, I wrote a film a few years ago, which you might find interesting, called yeah. "How to Get a Job." A very valuable. <laughs> I'm not taking advice job. from you. <laughs> no, you know, a, paid, a paid job. What? Well, a paid job. Both. You're doing a good job of the, of the Saudi government. All right. right. So yeah. anyway, <laughs> you would not. How dare you? Not <laughs> how much does it pay? Yeah. How much is it? The head chopping go, uh, job in Chop Chop Square? Uh, I How don't know. I don't know. Probably 29 virgins. That's, <laughs> that's always the first question I ask. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.